0: I'm Sean O'Brien, president and CEO of NatureServe, with this month's episode of Conservation Conversations, where I had the great pleasure of talking with James Evans, who's the executive director of Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity, also known as CARE. Uh, James is going to talk a little bit about that organization. James is also a wildlife photographer who has a new book out called Among the Birds, I Am Human. And uh, James and I talk a lot about that in the upcoming podcast. Uh, This podcast is a little different from many that you've heard from us at Conservation Conversations. It's less about the diversity of nature and more about the diversity of humanity. James's work focuses on the BIPOC community, which is Black, Indigenous and people of color, and their relationships with uh, animals and nature. And we talk a lot about uh, what that means for him personally and for people of color in general, in, uh, in wild spaces and uh, in society. And we hope that you will enjoy this show um, and think about the, uh, the role of people with different backgrounds and different perspectives in uh, nature and in the conservation of nature and protecting our planet for the future. Also, before we start today, I wanna ask that if you love listening to this podcast, that you will consider making a donation to NatureServe to protect North American biodiversity. Donating online is easier than ever, and you can do it quickly from your phone or from our website. Just visit natureserve.org and click donate. And thank you for your support. I understand you're a Baltimore native. Is that right?
1: I am a Baltimore native. Um, I was born in Baltimore. Let me see, nineteen sixty-eight. So <laughs> just, just a little, just a little bit ago. <laughs> Two years after I
0: was born, not in Baltimore, but my family's from Baltimore. Oh, is a, it? Yeah, my dad's family has been in Baltimore since the late eighteen hundreds. Wow. So what? I, what I'm curious about is you grew up in a pretty urban setting, Baltimore. and I'm curious about your early life and your early exposure to wildlife and to nature and what inspired you to sort of be interested in um sort of the care of of the planet and the care of animals
1: yeah um yeah that's a good question I I grew up in a very urban setting um very you know, this an enormous amount of concrete. Like when you think about it, it just seems so unnatural. Mm-hmm. Um and there is an enormous park in the middle of Baltimore, a Druid Hill Park. Um, and we lived maybe uh, 14 or 15 blocks away. And that was the only space where I think my mom felt comfortable letting us just. You know, she called it rip, ripping and running and we walked to the park and back. Um, and so that was the the greenest space that I was exposed to. But I didn't think of it as a, um, you know, a wildlife space the way I think of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that turned me on early was Mutual of Omaha. Um, me too. <laughs> you know, I had my favorite shows. The Six Million Dollar Man, um, you know, Wonder Woman, and all of those, those, all those shows back then. Um, the Mutual um, of Omaha was just a Sunday staple, and followed by my next favorite show, which was 60 Minutes. I mean, I would get as close to the television as I could possibly get, and I, I think, you know, the contrast between. Growing up in a city where it's loud, you don't see wild animals. You, we did not. I did not see squirrels in in my neighborhood at all. No squirrels or any anything like that. It was, you know, dogs, cats, rats, and that was the extent of you know wildlife. So yeah, mutual of Omaha was. I, I may I may I may as well have been watching a a show about another planet. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So I often credit Mutual and National Geographic and Jacques Cousteau, because I'm basically the same age as you are, um, with sort of forming my interest in thinking about and working to conserve nature and conserve biodiversity. So it's interesting to hear you say those had an influence on you because huge. They it it shows the power of media, of course.
1: Um, Yes. And it's so it, it. I mean, the power of media in so many ways, it, it's incredible. And and that's the business that I'm in um, now. I've spent a lot of time in, in mass communications is what mass comms for short. And I think people take for granted um, how important it is to um, frame messages properly, which also means including people in those messages, um, diverse people across the planet, and watching those, watching Mutual of Omaha, I love Jacques Cousteau, by the way. And uh, when I started taking French in high school, I realized that his name was James. And I was like, oh, this guy is like super cool now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, when I was a kid, I had no concept of the lack of diversity, but I also had no ambitions to be in those same spaces. I never imagined myself as being Jacques Cousteau or being on Mutual of Omaha. And I think that's directly connected to having not seen anyone like myself in those spaces. And right. so it was years. And I mean, it's only been I, I would say 10 years since I imagined myself as a as a wildlife photographer, as someone that's invested in the environment. Um, so often those um, those voices are are not are non non brown voices, right? So there's so many
0: things I want to follow up on, but I want to give you a chance to tell us about your organization that you founded and run, and what its goals are, because it has several roles related to the things we've just been talking about with diversity yeah. and with animals and exposure, and of course diverse voices in this uh, landscape. So
1: tell us a little bit about about your organization. Um, thank you. um so in in sh- in brief, i I ran a a mass communications firm for for years. and a few of our major clients were the Humane Society of the United States and um best friends and all of the sort of larger animal welfare organizations. um And in doing that work, so often these folks would would be very interested in and in, advertising or or getting predominantly BIPOC neighborhoods or communities interested in spay neuter. Um, But the net net is, um, I noticed early on in doing that work for our clients that while they were trying to reach out to BIPOC communities, there were no BIPOC members um, inside of their own firms. And so we were we were being used as a, a liaison between this very white animal protection world and BIPOC communities. Um, and just quickly, and so uh,
0: one of the things I like to do on this
1: uh, is podcast defined is not
0: leave acronyms unspoken. Yep. So Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, correct?
1: Yep, exactly. Okay. And okay. so um, having not seen that, you know, at that point in my life, I was a business person, and so my talents were around mass communications. And so we did the work. We sort of insisted on including uh, people of color in in their magazines, in commercials, and in the literature. Um, and so we were able to do that, but no more than that. It was all surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our major donors, our first donor, uh, Springpoint, they're located in in uh, Philadelphia. Uh Chathan Amaro of Springpoint, essentially started looking around industry and asking if there's someone that is bipoc in the industry that is willing to champion or start an organization around bringing more bipocs to the field. She found me. We had a long conversation. And she asked if I will be willing to start a not-for-profit, and I said yes, uh, like a like a crazy person.
0: Uh, <laughs> I was going to say this must. This was a pretty big shift in your. life. It was a
1: really, really, really big shift. Um, yeah. But she, I, I think, so often, um, you know, asking people to do the work that they're already doing and saying. You know. By the way, I I see you. I recognize you. I, I, I recognize your gifts. I recognize you're the only person in this field who is willing to branch out and be intentionally inclusive. So, you know, while while it seemed very different, it really was what we were already doing. We were we were trying to do the work that animal welfare organizations were asking us to do. We were just asking them to be a little bit more. Um, inclusive, um, and and for the most part, to no real avail. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, we started care in 2019, and care stands for uh, companions and animals for reform and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after starting care, um, George Floyd was murdered, and so this enormous amount of attention inside of the animal protection field turn towards care to start answering um, somewhat obvious questions, right which is I think many organ- organizations and individuals around the country started asking themselves questions. Um, one of the essential or maybe um, more uh, guarded questions was am I racist right did, did I did I see this coming? Right Or why didn't I see this coming? I think we often ask ourselves that as adults, um because you know, watching something like that on television and understanding it has deep um, social consequences, um all of which are avoidable. And so inside of animal welfare, folks were asking those questions at the same time, care was launching itself. So I think I was on. I think probably 10 podcasts a month or engagements a month. And this was also at the beginning of COVID. So it gave us a a, a great platform. People were stuck at home. Um, and so the, the principle around care, by the way, is it is not a DEI effort, right? <laughs> um, people get confused because we are mostly people of color running the organization. But our our work is really centralized around doing the same work um, our white counterparts were doing. We're just addressing it from a perspective um, based in community wisdom, based in our own lived experience, and in some ways, we're we're doing the work inside of a, per, a protected space that many of us didn't have when we were working for predominantly white organizations. So,
0: um, how do you see because you're coming from uh, a different perspective, and you have many people of color in your organization, and uh, your your team is really impressive? Of course, on your website, you got a, a great group of people working with you. Amazing. Um, how do you see your approach to these issues being different from the predominantly white-run organizations that are working in this field?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't have all the answers for why this is, but I think part of it is rooted in a sense of um, it, it is. I, I deeply believe it's rooted in white supremacy, and I think often people when people think of white supremacy, they think of it as someone being lynched, right, uh, or this this hyper-violentness. Um, but that's the extreme end of white supremacy. The the more passive end of white supremacy. Um, is the reason that whiteness exists anyway? Is it's to dominate, right? It was designed to dominate, and 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 in that there is a. My mom used to say, "White makes right, right." That is often the perspective of white dominant culture: is that from our white dominant space, we already know the answers. So a lot of um, NGOs, non for profits, they enter into spaces to solve problems, but they don't do any deep listening um, with the groups for which they're trying to solve problems, right? So for instance, um, you have groups that will come in to an indigenous community like the one I'm in right now um, and attempt to shame them or blame them for the large amount of free roaming dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. But that community has a um, a deep interest in seeing those animals free, right? They don't they don't see dogs and cats roaming um, any differently than deer roaming or fox roaming or hawks roaming, right? We were joking the other day. I said, you know, people feed um, outdoor birds all the time, and if that bird crashes into a window no one says oh you're an irresponsible bird owner right how did you how did you allow your bird to run into a window um but that's what happens here the 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 more dominant white side of animal welfare is also all, often shaming indigenous communities for allowing their animals to roam free um but and and then in doing so they project this um, misconception on the community that they don't actually care about the animals. But indigenous people are are spiritually tied to animals in ways that white communities don't identify with. So um, many of the folks that we are working with, they belong to clans. I mean, they have eagle clans and bear clans and otter clans. And so They're intrinsically everything about what they do connects them to animals. And just because they don't want to see them fenced um, doesn't mean they don't care. They care in a different way than we care. And so when you come into a community like this and you attempt to solve problems by doing things that encourage tethering or fencing without talking to folks, then you're 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 trying to solve your problem. You're not trying to solve the community's problem. And so um, white dominant culture um, often doesn't listen to, to to community. And so one of the things that care does is regardless of what community that we're in, whether it's indigenous or it's, it's Philadelphia or it's Atlanta, we start first with asking people um, how they want to solve their own problems. And we also finance and mentor those groups to start their own non-for-profits to solve their problems themselves. Um, And that is really unique in that um, so often to increase inclusion in organizations, you have DEI practitioners and they come into large white dominant spaces, many of them white themselves, Mm -hmm. and they try to encourage the leadership to allow BIPOCs, Black, Indigenous, um, and people of color into that space. And what we're doing is saying, yes, yes, definitely Um, realize that there is untapped genius. But on the other hand, what we're doing is we are going to those BIPOC folks themselves in their own communities and saying, you don't need to join this white dominant group. What you need to do is solve your own problems at your own pace, in your own way, using your own community wisdom. Yeah, so it the, really sets us, sets us apart.
0: The word that you said there that sort of made my heart skip was um, allow them in. Um, that is as though people should need permission to come into any space, but of course we know you know, institutional racism and things. And of course, right now we're talking a lot. You mentioned the words earlier, or the letters DEI before. Uh, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and also B for belonging. And yep. of course, if you belong, then you don't need to be allowed in. You're that in is belong.
1: correct. You're in. That is and correct.
0: That's one of the challenges. And I'm, I'm reflecting back to what you said at the very, very beginning of our conversation about how you didn't see yourself as a wildlife photographer because you didn't see anybody who looked like you. And so you didn't feel like you maybe were allowed in, or you belonged. And um, you also said uh, a little while ago, um, "I see you," as in like I see you for who you are. And that once makes me want to go back to a conversation that we were having before Um, we were on on maybe being recorded, uh, but I want us to revisit. And that is uh, related to your book. Um, which has the title Among the Birds, I Am Human. And so in this book, you have just gorgeous ph- photography, by the way. So people should definitely Thank check you. it out. Um, we talked before about that one photograph of the, uh, of the yeah. two birds, <laughs> just mind <my> blowing. <brother. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but I also want to talk about what that title means to you and how that is part of your journey from. I didn't see anybody who looks like me to a place where you are right now, where you're in an indigenous community in uh, in the Midwest talking about, you know, the care of animals. Uh, so yeah. talk a little bit about your book and, and what why you called it. Among the birds, I am human
1: and what that means to you. Yeah. Um, one, this is the first time I've produced the book, so just it's it's, you know, it gives me the tingles hearing somebody repeat the. The title it sounds so odd in a in a in a good way, um, but I think for me, um, and it's this has taken years to, to find the vocabulary for that title. Um, I just, I just want to be treated like a stranger, like a like an individual, and um, that's that's what happens when you're out um, amongst. Any kind of wildlife. Wildlife doesn't see you as a as a tall, athletic white guy, or um, a short guy, or a black man, or an Asian woman. Right? Wildlife just sees you as human. You are a human being, and some somehow um, over the millennia, um, I suspect our behavior has always been somewhat less than good. (laughs) And it it seems that every species on the planet knows that. Um, And so our silhouette, I think, signals fear um, for most animals. And I'm okay with that because that fear is not connected to something that is racialized, right? That fear is something that's connected to the whole of humanity. We have a tendency to be wasteful. Um, we have a tendency to be violent for no reason. Um, and we have a tendency to be very, very unproductive um, in a way that's different than animals. Mm-hmm. And I I understand their initial fear of us, but I don't understand other people's initial fear of me um, beyond um, being racialized beyond being criminalized, being black is, uh, is often equated, whether we recognize it immediately or not, um, with being criminalized. And so for me, I am I'm allowed to be my whole self ends out of a natural setting because animals don't look at me the way um, white Americans look at me. And, and and to be honest, the animals don't look at me the way Black Americans look at me. Um, I've been in many situations where my um, interest in science or my interest in art or photography um, has triggered other people to call me white. You're you're acting white. You're you're being white because they associate those sensitivities. Or um, curiosities with purely whiteness, because they've they not they have not been exposed to those things before. So they think they only exist in a, in a white existence. So right. it's um, but again, the I feel often my the most like my natural self inside of natural settings.
0: Yeah, I mean, Um, you surely experienced um, the situations that happened in Central Park and the things that uh, Drew Lanham talks about, about being a black birder and how the the black man with binoculars is suspicious.
1: Um, (laughs) My wife is so concerned about me being out by myself, and I just think that that's sad. Um, Very sad. And, you know, I have had... um, I've had people say some pretty threatening things, mostly things that hurt my feelings or agitate me. And I don't I don't typically feel like my life is in danger, except when law enforcement is around, because I'm I'm all I'm in camo. Um, I, I shoot at um, uh, often at Conowingo Dam. And since September 11th, Conowingo Dam is a protected area. Um, You can't really get close to the dam like you used to be able to. And and the eagles are always near the dam. Mm -hmm. And so once I was there in camo, like everyone else, by the way, it's like I think it's 22 degrees out. Everyone's in camo. Everyone has on face gear to keep their noses from freezing off. But this one woman walks up to me and she asked me if I was a terrorist. And there there was law enforcement on the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's some some law enforcement from the Department of um, Natural Resources. And it's immediately when she said that, I I thought, you know, of of a number of nasty comments. But then I thought, these are milliseconds, by the way, that I can't make her mad. I don't have I don't have the, the latitude to make her mad because if if she had the nerve to say that to me and then I make her mad. What if she says something to these law enforcement officers who right. are, are now approaching me um, because a white woman is approaching them and she's afraid that I might be a terrorist. So now they're walking up to me as if that narrative is already true. Uh-huh. Now, my camera is not a camera. Um, now, there might be something in my gloves. Um, you know, it's just—it's not fair that I have to ab- absorb that level of stress just to take pictures of right. eagles. It could, could not be your more hobby,
0: right, right? Taking <laughs> pictures of the bald eagles, right? What could be right. more American? What, 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 could what could be more be... American, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. The—I uh, mean, these stories are important to hear, but also. You know, from from my perspective, who's never experienced that kind of treatment um, just sort of terrifying. Um, And so one of the challenges, of course, that we're facing and one of the reasons that you have care as your organization is to try and empower BIPOC people to feel more comfortable in these kinds of spaces, but also to give you a space to to talk. But we have a larger, we we have a huge societal problem, and you know something like 13% of the U.S. population is Black, and maybe six percent of uh, science, technology, and engineering professionals are Black. Uh, That's a pretty big discrepancy, and when you throw in other people of color, um, I'm sure the the difference becomes even greater. Um, Yeah what what can we do? I mean, we're you're making spaces that will allow people to see people who look like them in these kinds of fields. Is is this gonna is this a a really slow breaking wave? Or can we sort of encourage Mm. this wave to form and and crest more quickly? What what can we do?
1: Uh, Well, that's a great question. I think the the one thing we can do and it's and, and it may seem subtle, is to language is important, and and I and I, I will I will say, for instance, for instance, the term "in power," which has got its own, um, it's got its own sort of um, inertia going, right? Um, for me, um, BIPOC people, people of color, indigenous people, are incredibly powerful and ingenious. And creative already um we don't need to bestow that on anyone um if you believe in a divine being that divine being or that universal spirit or that stardust i think that got evenly sprinkled on all of us right so when you see a group that is um, living under the statistics that brown and black people are often living under—low um, unemployment, um, high um, mortality rates of from COVID, anything socially measurable. When you see that group of people constantly living at the at the margins, right? you we have to accept that we we have done something wrong there's something wrong with the entire structure because if the stardust was you know right spread evenly how is it that this one group that happens to call itself white um has it has all the advantages um that these other groups don't have right 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 so the system is broken and the on, the only way to dismantle the system for people to step out of it and stop thinking that um, all i need to do is vote for the right mayor all i have to do is vote for the right senator all i have to do is vote for the right governor and everything is going to fall into place that's nonsense Um, because that allows us to ignore one another in public spaces right when when i'm in when i'm in a public space it's not a governor or president that's assaulting me right Mm -hmm. um A a governor didn't assault Mr. Cooper in Central Park. That's a single woman that has decided that Chris Cooper was was the equivalent of a criminal. That was a decision that she made. And so for that um, press that you're talking about to happen, we have to start making better individual decisions.
0: I like this idea that you talk about with nature, seeing basically all humans the same, because one of the things that we really want people to do is to go out into nature. And we're routinely asking scientists to go out into nature and um, experience plants and animals and wildlife in different ways. Um, And hopefully um, we can encourage and be part of the solution and making and helping people see people that are like them. Uh, In this field, because many of the things that you've said earlier about, for instance, the way indigenous people view um, animals and wildlife, whether they're pets or wild animals, um, is a perspective on animals that I don't think about. It's not part of it's not part of my my history It's not part of my my culture um, that I grew up with. Uh, But it's really interesting to think about and to think about what kind of messaging we send. Uh, the really silly example is many people in my neighborhood let their house cats go outside and right. those house cats. I have seen them catch birds and chipmunks and things in my yard, and it's very frustrating. Yes. Now, this is a suburban neighborhood outside of Washington, as opposed to, you know, a more rural setting where maybe animals outside is a different thing. But the right. my thought is, you know, house cats belong inside. and. Right. When you were talking earlier, I was like, oh, well, yeah, maybe, <laughs> I, maybe in some places I know they do, but not everywhere. And yeah. so it was, it, it changed you, you changed my thinking um, during our conversation. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I think it's really
1: beneficial to have our, uh, our preconceived notions challenged. Challenged. And, 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 and uh, believe me, I, my preconceived notions are challenged all the time but I think that's the decision that I've made to to let that happen. But I think that I've come to the conclusion that it's not that cats belong inside, it's that we belong outside. People belong outside. I think that's the mistake that we've made. We've made um, this crucial era in our development that we're no longer gonna be migratory, right? we're going to own parts of the planet. And once we own it, we're going to build on it. We're going to build tall. We're going to build big. We're going to make ourselves comfortable. We're going to create air-conditioned places and make ourselves nice and cozy. And and all we've done is cut ourselves off from this natural world, the natural ebb and flow. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to me in thinking about indigenous folks and whether or not their animals should be roaming. I, I think we are the ones that are supposed to be roaming.
0: Um,
1: so James, I wanna ask you
0: one last thing and you can either answer both questions or one or the other. Um, and it's, But it's okay. sort of one Fair enough. <laughs> So it's <laughs> it's essentially, you know, earlier you talked about uh, Isabel Wilkerson and the warmth of other suns as sort of, has an, she has an inspiring mo- uh, quote. Um, so I'm interested in, someone who has inspired you and maybe inspired you to come to the path you're on. Now you talked about someone earlier who essentially talked you into starting a nonprofit, but you know, maybe there's a, yeah. or meta type person, but then also, um, was thinking about if there's someone or some book or something that you would recommend to the listeners to help them, uh, open, open their minds to, to the kinds of things that you care about.
1: Wow. Um, it wouldn't be one book. It would definitely be "Warmth of Other Sons, but also cast by the same author, Isabel Wilkerson. Yes. Um, "Warmth of Other Sons came first and it really talks about the great migration. Um, Black Americans moving to the North and to the West, mostly. Incredible book. Um, cast is a more universal book that talks about um, the caste system itself, which Isabel hypothesized that false caste is bigger than race and you have to read the book to get it. but it it's an incredible book. So those those two books on the sort of like social justice, what is what is race, what is racism, what is caste, those two books. But when I think about where we are as humans, and how we've lost our way. I think about um, um, the Good Earth mm. um, because it it speaks so much to um, the corruptive nature of greed, um, and and this man who was essentially, I guess, considered a poor Asian farmer. He actually had everything um, when he was just farming. When he was connected to the land. And then when he leveraged that farming into material wealth, um, it was completely corrosive to his body, his mind, and to his well-being. And I think that's where we are now. We have um and that's the good earth perless buck, right? That's perilous perilous buck, yeah. yeah. And to me, that's that's slavery, right? We we took the land, we sold the land, we sold the tobacco, we sold the cotton. Um, For all this material wealth And all it's done is corrupted us Um, And this this land as it was by itself um, Indigenous people literally had everything Um, So,
0: well, James, this has been really, really interesting And we could keep talking um, But I also want to respect your time And respect the time of all of our listeners um, Because we're going to I think give them a a different thing this uh, this month than that they've had in the past, and hopefully um, give them a lot to think about. Um, Especially when, because many of our listeners are people who are out in the wild and they're bird watching, and hopefully they will have some new things to think about when they see um, BIPOC people out birding and
1: uh, um, treat them as strangers and have a better reaction to them yeah treat them as strangers and also protect them you know that that woman that called me a terrorist another man that became a friend walked over to her and said he is absolutely not a terrorist he's a birder and you know he made that decision um again it's a personal decision to step in and correct something that he knew that i that i think he intuitively knew that i couldn't correct right so um i think those those are the things that are going to make that crest and that wave a little bigger and stronger and faster
0: awesome well thanks so much and thanks for the great work you do um we'll have links to your website and everything um in the description for the show but it's careawo.org if people are looking for you uh, online and uh Also on the website, right, they can see um, a PDF of at least parts of the book and some of your beautiful wildlife photography, which I highly encourage people to do. There's some amazing shots in there. And uh, thank you, James, for all that you do. It's really awesome that you're out there and doing that. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on the show. It was really it was really lovely.
0: I hope you found that episode as interesting as I did. I really enjoyed my conservation with James, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Conservation Conversations. Uh, The podcast really is an incredible opportunity for me to talk with scientific experts about the methods and philosophies behind biodiversity conservation and, of course, other topics as we just did. But there's another group of people who drive our work forward And that's supporters like you who make contributions to NatureServe. As a nonprofit, we rely on donations to continue the work of providing the best scientific information for effective conservation decision making. This giving season, please consider making a donation to NatureServe to protect North American biodiversity. I encourage you to visit our website at NatureServe.org to see the many ways that you can give and find one that's right for you. My favorite is Adopt a Species. But you may have a different way of that you want to support us. Uh, Every donation counts, and we really appreciate your support. It makes a huge difference. Have a great holiday season, and please don't forget to join us in December for the last episode of Conservation Conversations for 2022. (music)